DocuPod, the stories behind documentaries. Welcome to DocuPod. I am Tiffany. And before we get into this interview, I want to give you the synopsis of the film. Kafaro is a feature-length documentary film that follows the lives of two young Kenyan recruits named James and Jojo who join Old Pajeta Conservancy's Rhino Caretaker Unit, a small group of rangers that protect and care for Sudan, the last male northern white rhino in the world. Spanning over the course of the caretaker's first four years on the job, Kafaro allows viewers to intimately experience the joys and pitfalls of wildlife conservation firsthand through the eyes of these Kenyan rhino caretakers who witness extinction happening in real time. I'm joined by the Emmy-nominated cinematographer and award-winning filmmaker who is also the director and cinematographer of Kafaro. David Hambridge is here. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm glad to be here. No problem. Thank you so much for taking the time. This is such a powerful film. I honestly cried when I had the pleasure of seeing it at Full Frame Festival in North Carolina. But I'm so excited that it's coming to not only the Bay Area, but so many more cities. Of course, as always, all those screenings are going to be in the show description. But I got to get started with the origin story. How and when did this come across your desk? That's a good question. I would say, you know, in I think it was 2014, I was approached by Andrew Brown, who's the producer of the film. We actually started lifeguarding together like 10 years before we kind of got back together to talk about documentary filmmaking. And he asked me if, you know, he saw that I've been to Ethiopia recently and was traveling around doing documentary work. And he asked if I wanted to do a Kickstarter with him. So we initially raised about $35,000 and $38,000 maybe on Kickstarter. And we decided to go to Kenya in the following May, which was, I think, like six months later. And so went there with a small crew and, you know, we filmed in Ambazeli and we're kind of trying to just find like where the stories were. And and we knew we wanted to tell like a, a local Swahili voice kind of Kenyan story, especially during this big time of like poaching and you know, wildlife trafficking was really making the headlines, but we really hadn't connected or found a story that like really resonated with the local populations and felt like it was represented by the people on the ground. So we really divided and conquered for about a month and went from, you know, like the Masai Mara or Ambazeli Big Life Foundation near the Tanzanian border all the way up to the Rift Valley and Mount Kenya, where Obviously, you know, old Pajetta and the last male northern white rhino we heard, you know, was living. And at the time when we did the Kickstarter, there were actually six northern white rhinos when we made the video. And then during our Kickstarter, Sunni, who was the second to last male, was living at Opajeta and Sunni died. And Sunni was kind of like the championed northern white rhino that was younger than Sudan and they thought was going to save the species. So when he died, we knew at the time, you know, the population was now down to five. And I think by the time we got to Kenya, another northern white rhino had died. So it was really shocking because by the time we got there, Sudan was kind of just being billed in the media and like Instagram hashtags of like last male standing. You know, so we knew he was really special, but we kind of didn't really realize how fast the population was just kind of dwindling. And the guys, when we got to Opajeta, it felt like, you know, there's a lot of tourism around Sudan and the Northern Whites because they were so threatened. So there's a, a really good security force, but it was also like the guys in the Boma and the, you know, near Sudan that took care of them every day 
we're so used to tourists coming in and out and for short periods of time and getting their pictures is like paying homage to Sudan. And, you know, I met Jojo and James on that first trip. And really, I focused the first trip on Jacob, who's one of the elders and kind of takes more of a backseat in the film to Jojo and James being more of the main characters of the story. But I really got to know them and I was just kind of uh, attracted to them as being the voices of the story because they were so passionate about Sudan and they were also younger and they also were really interested in me and why I wanted to stay after 6 p.m. or, you know, why I was coming and asking to, like, you know, hang out with them after they showed me Sudan. Like, I, I wasn't content with just getting my photo with Sudan and filming with these guys and asking them the same generic questions of, you know, what does he eat and, you know, what is it like to take care of this last animal and what's your life like exactly? And then, you know, go back to the research center or a hotel and then leave after getting a story. So I think, you know, after just coming back and showing them that I cared and that their story and their voices are going to be the vessel in which the world kind of hear the story of the last male and the white rhino in the world and what it was like taking care of them. And that be a local story for them and one that they don't have to talk to me in English about. They can speak about themselves and you know, their lives will unfold and their relationship with Sudan will be shared on screen. And that's kind of how people will get to know extinction. You know, when I knew Sudan was going to eventually pass and I, I knew that I'd stick to this story until the end. So I knew that those times would kind of intersect where extinction would happen and they would witness it in real time. And also humanity and science would be rushing behind the scenes to save whatever DNA and whatever they can get from Sudan to kind of preserve his genetics and see was the last of his kind. And, and that's really what happened in the film, you know, as you saw things kind of happen. Yeah, it's just really trying to be prepared and also give it a very clear direction from the beginning with a, with a very clear, I guess, stylistic approach. But in terms of the story and what happened, I had no idea like in what order it would unfold. And I really didn't expect to be there when Sudan collapsed. So uh, there's a lot there that was left to chance, I would say. Definitely. I love the fact that you talked about that you guys really took the time to find a story that not only resonated with you, but really resonated with the area. And I think that definitely shows because the connection that you guys have with James and Jojo really comes out on screen as far as capturing their families, capturing their lives and really capturing their emotions towards Sudan because they spend every single day with him for months on end and that love is undeniable and I think you guys did such a fabulous job of capturing that so it's like it's not only is this a story of extinction but it's a real story of love and dedication and humanity but also humanity mixed with nature and I just think that you guys did such a great job on that thank you yeah I think sacrifice is definitely a key theme I think James really gets at the core of that you know he says in the film being a friend of an animal means you know being a friend of a living being that'll never look you in the eyes and say thank you you know and they daily uh for years had to wake up every day and look at Sudan in the eyes and really you know confide in in that relationship as being a special one and one that would eventually that investment of taking care of him would pay off whether it felt like there's a payoff in that or you know something that you kind of have to just cheer yourself on for, I think they knew that it would be 
something they would need to stick out to the end and, and really believe in, which is kind of, it's a reality uh, when you're taking care of the last animal of its kind and he's old. You just have to know that your work is valuable and not everyone's going to thank you the same way, uh, let alone the animal that you're taking care of might not even know how to communicate its feelings to you. And that was one thing that kind of, you know, humanizing Sudan was one thing in the film that we tried to take very seriously. And like you said, you know, they took care of him every day, like a dog uh, and like a golden retriever. And when they said his name, he would come, you know, and get up and those voices, I can't mimic their voices, even though I would, tried to when I was near Sudan. He knew it was me. It wasn't them, you know. But it's really, I think that's something that's pretty interesting, though, is how animals have a very unique ability to kind of adapt and use their other senses that are not so keen to kind of recognize humans. And that's one thing that Sudan was really good at, was identifying who's who and to be comfortable around or he also had a really profound sense of smell and really could tell mm. when it was safe and when there were people that were probably not comfortable around him you know there's a lot there that's definitely fascinating these are just things that we don't think of like an incredible sense of smell and being able to distinguish between different people like i just think that that's so cool and just really speaks to the legend that is Sudan and the legend that is the male northern white rhino and how important they are. When it comes to the title of the film, I think you could have gone a million different ways. At what point did Kifaro click for you? I think I want to say like even I was in Hong Kong in November and the film was still called Sudan, The Last Male Standing. Once we kind of started you know, putting the rough cut and shaping it together after I got back from Hong Kong, which was kind of around the ending for me. It was a time where people were kind of listening to what the film was about and also hearing what the landscape was. And Kafaru was kind of a title that was thrown my way. And, and I was kind of asked, like, how do you feel about this name? And, and it said uh, a couple of times in the film. And so to be honest, you know, Kafaru really was the name that came about this year before we premiered it at Slamdance. It was really, I mean, I hate to sound like a sellout, but it was a conversation that uh, we had with our sales team, Submarine, because David Magdale and Associates was saying, you know, people are getting it confused with like these war movies of like child soldiers of Sudan that are like, you know, trapped and it's like their last fighting chance to live and all this. We just kind of were like indifferent at that time, you know, like after four or five years of me making this film about Sudan and calling it The Last Male Standing, I just wasn't married to the name so much as like, you know, you can't really break and change my characters and my story. But at the time, you know, Kafaru was kind of a name that Fit, and it was in the film and said a lot and you know it's Swahili for the rhino we thought you know Sudan was kind of the most iconic rhino of this generation mm-hmm. and really of, of the northern whites period so really didn't have a particular allegiance to the name Sudan the last male standing even though that was kind of the name for 
the majority of its production. Yeah, I appreciate your honesty about it being a conversation within the sales realm. But at the same time, you mentioning that it is Swahili for Rhino, I think that it gives it more of a personal touch and more of an ode to the fact that you spent time with these people and really, I can't stress it enough, like really told their stories while still telling Sudan's story. So I think that it just fits beautifully. It's great that it worked on a sales end, but it really sums up the <laughs> film in a way that if you went to see yeah. Sudan, The Last Male Standing, it might just be about Sudan and his last days, but it really becomes an experience to meet Jojo and James and really take a lens onto their life. So I think that the title really yeah. sums that up well. Well, I'm glad. Yeah. I'm, it also kind of, I think when you hear Kafaru and it is kind of a nice Swahili word, it doesn't limit you to understanding what you know or judging it based on the words, the last male standing or Sudan, you know, being a country. So I agree. Like, I think at a certain point you kind of have to kind of you know, you don't have to, but it's it's nice to kind of get an outsider's perspective and reopen maybe how married you are to your own title of your film and evaluate, is it ringing true to my story and, and the themes of my story? Or is it just a sexy title that, you know, I just like? I mean, like, why, what is it deep down inside that I like about the name of my movie? And why am I calling it this? And we actually had the conversation with the guys in the film and they really liked the name Sudan because it was, you know, an ode to their buddy. But um, at the end of the day, they, they also really liked the idea of Kafaru and we just were kind of at a point where we could have these discussions with the guys. It really didn't matter at this point because we already have the story. So the title was just a way to kind of organize it, I guess, and package it. I think it's cool that you included them too and that it's important that they put their stamp on it too because at the end of the day it's their story and it's a representation of them so I think that that's really cool to have their stamp on it and then you mentioned funding and your successful crowdfunding congratulations on that what was that process not like? easy no not at all <laughs> yeah it's stressful I can't even oh man the entire funding I mean this is for five years in the making but the initial funding with Kickstarter is you really have to sell your idea and really make a good video for Kickstarter to kind of pick up speed. And I think statistically, like most projects get funded in their last 24 hours, which half of them will only meet half of their goal. And in the last like 24 to 48 hours, they'll get the rest of it, which is so nerve wracking if you think about that, because also with you know kickstarter if you don't get to your goal you don't get anything whereas indiegogo it's like they don't have a reserve like that where you you know you have to make your goal or you're not getting a single dime so campaigning for like two months and talking about this film and asking people to donate and all this stuff is so stressful and then only to like come up short like ten thousand dollars with like 24 hours left to go then we're all as a team kind of thinking like all right how much are we willing to put in from our savings <laughs> like if we're within five ten thousand dollars all right if we had to split this up just so we can get these donations that others are giving and be able to how much are we willing to put in ourselves if we have to but those were some re real questions in the beginning that were scary but luckily with the way and the, the way that kickstarter is and the kind of swell 
of popularity you get within the last 24 hours just because of the urgency. We were able to raise you know, $3,000 over our goal. I think 35000 was our goal, and we were able to raise thirty-eight. So that took care of, honestly, like one trip, though, you know. And we found our story, found two stories, but they kind of divided and conquered. And yeah, they became two different features from that initial Kickstarter trip. And so from that point, it became a pretty singular fundraising effort after the first trip, because for about two years after that first trip in 2015, I was funding the whole film myself. And a lot of the times I was traveling by myself back to Old Pajetta, working at the research center, well, staying at the research center while there's other scientists that were doing longer studies and things at Old Pajetta. There was always this place where I could stay. And I asked Richard Vine, after he got to know me a couple of times, if I could come back and have a discount uh, when I stayed there. And I told him kind of the way that I wanted to tell this story of Sudan through the lens of these guys, which he hadn't really seen anybody do yet. And, you know, it really took a lot of sacrifice on my part to fund this with my commercial work because I was living in North Carolina and doing commercial work. And then with the money I would save up, I would put that away to go back to Kenya in May or go back in July or, you know, December in 2016, we went three times, four times for a month and a half, two months each, each trip. And it was really either me or me and one other person. In 2016, two of the trips was me and my colleague, Jesse Paddock, who's another documentary filmmaker based in Chapel Hill. We were following, I was when Ringo was a big part of the story. Ringo and Sudan were really close. You know, Jojo was getting closer to Ringo as kind of a father figure to this abandoned orphan rhino. So Sudan actually, he became a new rhino. He became totally revitalized and rejuvenated by this baby southern white rhino that was abandoned in the bush. And I think we were filming the first time when Sudan like was sleeping in Ringo's pen and then the first night they slept together, like this massive northern white male that's old and he's grumpy a lot. And then you see Ringo that's like very innocent, you know, six month year old baby rhino that is like just fascinated by this massive northern white rhino Sudan and, and there's this, this innocence to their interaction that really made Sudan have like a, a second wind because it was so lonely sometimes you know and you could really feel the emptiness around him but when Ringo came it really brought a whole new breath of fresh air and, and a lot of innocence to the caretakers like they were laughing again and you know they were giggling because Ringo didn't know how to give himself a mud bath or be like he didn't know how to eat grass or do anything it's just very innocent little orphan rhino that uh really brought a whole new element to the story that we weren't expecting but you know luckily we were there for it it was a moment in history really that you had to kind of be there to capture that kind of youthfulness that Ringo brought out of Sudan and, and the kind of change in behavior that he really brought about too, which was really a profound thing to witness and to document especially. The scenes with the both of them are just so much fun and it definitely brought out so much life out of Sudan and the caretakers and it was just happy to see everybody just be a little more lively and have a good time. And you mentioned how historic that was and something I learned about in the Q&A was about the exclusivity that you guys had with in this story. Can you walk us through what that exclusivity looked like? Yeah, so the exclusivity was something that I didn't really know the importance of it at the time. I kind of just pretty naive thinking that 
other people that want to tell their story are going to probably do it. There's nothing I can really do about what other people want to do and the way they want to tell their stories. And like, that's one way to think. And that's one ideology with documentary filmmaking is like, go after your story and try to tell your story the best you can. Don't worry about what other people are making and how they're telling it and all that. And it's really easy to say that and just be like, worry about your story. Who cares what other people are making? Like, make yours great. But like, when you're dealing with the last Northern White Rhino in the world and he's billed in the media as like the last known Northern White Rhino, and he's like guarded 24-7 by armed rangers and it's like this high stakes environment, the people around this animal are going to obviously be the gatekeepers to his story. And I knew that James and Jojo were also very charismatic guys that were easy to talk to and easy to relate to. And so when I kind of got to know them well, I knew that they would be the vessel that I would tell the story through and, you know, allowing them to just speak in Swahili and half the time me not know what they're talking about, but, you know, not like limit them to the English they know or English they want to communicate to me, but letting the story take place in Kenya within the conversation around Kenyans and letting them be Kenyan and not give me an American version. I didn't ask for that. I didn't want to interfere with anything. So after about second or third trip, I um, I don't want to spoil what happens in the film with Ringo and Sudan, but when a certain thing happened in the film and I saw Jojo was affected by it, the circle of life was happening with Jojo and, and his family and it was also very much represented something else in the film when that kind of happens with Ringo and Sudan and I just knew that that was such a tipping point I think in the production where it just changed things and there was a couple film crews coming and going and I, I just told Richard I was like you know I've now spent a year and a half coming back and forth to Old Pajetta. I really care about this story. I'm going to stick to it for the end game. You know, like I want to tell the story in the way that I'm doing it so far, like through the eyes of these guys and their bond with Sudan. So I had to kind of make a case for the style in which I was going to tell it and also get the kind of life story rights of the guys and get that to be an exclusive story that like I knew that they'd be speaking to the media a lot and that was fine with me. But anybody that was like, you know, if there was another filmmaker that was like, hey, let me follow you home or get to know your family, like that was a moment where they would know that if anybody's trying to tell it through this kind of more human-centric way, through relationships with humans with animals, and that was the kind of style that I was telling it, then that would be very much the same kind of story if they kind of did it like that. So I asked the guys to kind of understand where I'm coming from with wanting to tell it the way that I did and, and also kind of showing the, the commitment that I had shown in the past year and a half, two years, the time when they kind of signed these life story rights for me to have, you know, exclusivity with the way that I'm telling it. I think that was really important because it really positioned the film you know, the Conservancy recognized the film being unique in that way. And also, we're not letting Sudan's story, it was getting out there, but the intimateness that I had with Sudan, I, you know, I could stay after hours and I could sleep in the Bomas with the guys and I was asking them, you know, 
very uncanny things like, is it okay if I stick around or if you're going to go back home, is it cool if I go back home with you and I'm going to leave, you know, old Vegeta stay with you in the mountains and been doing that for six months. And by the time they realized that I was telling it through their eyes, they were already on board. So when I want to, you know, ask them to sign the life story right for the film to be exclusive in that way, in their mind, it was already a done deal, but they understood that for me to kind of build value in documentary storytelling, you have to have an original story and you also have to have an original perspective. And sometimes that can get very watered down or people can shoot holes in it and say, oh, somebody's already done that or whatever. And that's great. Like they can say that. But if you have a good story, this was one, I guess, North Star I kept coming back to. It was like, I didn't care if somebody else tried to tell the same film I did, but I knew the story I had and I knew that it would always be a good story, no matter if Sudan is in critical condition or what, because of the way that we told it. So after getting the life story rights and putting the emphasis on how important that was, it was almost just as liberating just to say, you know what, like, even if they sign this and then they do the story with BBC or whatever, I guess I'm powerless, you know? And that could be true. If people really wanted this, they could have probably convinced the guys otherwise or, you know, swayed them in some way and bribed them or done something. So at the end of the day, you know, you have to go as far as you can to get as much rights and as much, I guess, legal stuff there is for you to protect your film, especially if you invested a lot of your own personal finances and time into it certainly don't want somebody just to steal your story but at the same time you just have to accept that like it could happen and if it does are you going to be okay with it knowing that you're the only person that can tell this film the way that you've told it and knowing that at best maybe only a handful of people will see it the way that you told it but maybe some other big media conglomerate could make your same story and It'll be seen by millions of people, but are you still okay with just knowing that the way you're telling it and the way that you've been telling it for however long is good enough for you? And you have to kind of make amends with that. And if that's enough, which for me it was, because I knew that I'd still, in the interest and I guess the belief of like, if you're doing work and you're working hard on something and you're putting your heart and your you know livelihood into it it can't be just ripped away from you like a band-aid you know and you're left high and dry i just kind of had this you know conviction that that would just be so wrong and who could have the you know audacity to steal something from you but at a certain point you know it could happen and i was ready for it and i certainly knew that sudan was a huge player for a lot of people coming to see him filming with him there's so many reports out there with him but at the end of the day, I knew that these guys were calling me when certain things in their lives were happening that were special to them or they wanted to inform me on something. So I knew just in case I wanted to go back and film, even if I was like, no, that's not something I'm really focusing on right now, but thanks for letting me know. Like, we always had this open communication. So for, you know, four years, we'd stay in touch and talk like every two weeks. So that was like something that on paper, there's yeah exclusive life story rights looks great and when you're you know trying to get a co-production or something it really helps if you want to get secure funding or get investors that are interested because they know you have the rights to this and you have a very unique end so it's more appealing but i was a first-time filmmaker i had really nothing under my name besides a few commercials and some doc work i had done 
So they still weren't taking a chance on me, but I knew the story would be a feature and I would have spent enough time with the guys in Sudan that when he did collapse or something happened to him, people would kind of look up and it would be like that Cecil the Lion moment or like Harambe where people are like, who has the story? Like, it's so tragic, but is anybody like filming with this animal for the last couple of years? And if there was a crew with Cecil the Lion for like the three years leading up to when he was shot, surely somebody would have bought that story immediately. But I just knew that he would be an iconic rhino and an iconic ambassador for extinction when he did pass and they would be declared extinct by natural methods. So I just kind of knew that there was a lot of buzz around him already and it was kind of being cheapened by mainstream media just billing him every year and coming back to visit him for four or five years and just saying, you know, last male on the white rhino still standing or last male on the white rhino looking more skinny. And then they even did a Tinder page for him as like last male on the white rhino, most eligible bachelor in the world. <laughs> and this was like in twenty seventeen, like Tinder worked with Old Jetta and they put out this press release was like Sudan's the most eligible bachelor in the world. <laughs> and I'm just like, I get it and uh, people are like, Hey, did you see that Sudan has a Tinder profile? I'm like, No, I didn't see that but why is Sudan on Tinder? And it's kind of this like genius marketing thing, but you know, it becomes a, a buzzword and it's like a buzzworthy, you know, reaction and I was so used to that. And I knew that, like, when he died, people would be like, oh, God, like, wait, what? Like, that I heard about that guy, that rhino. I heard about Sudan. Somebody was telling me about that the other day. Or I saw his Kinder profile about a rhino that was, like, the last. Is that the same one you're talking about? And so there was a lot of that where people were just like, whoa, you have this story? I've heard of this rhino, but I didn't know that he was in that grave danger. And I'm not blaming mainstream media, but I think the return of getting the headlines for two weeks for four years in a row of like last male Northern white rhino, last male standing, blah, blah, blah. It kind of lessened the impact of that when he actually did collapse and did die. It was like, oh, yeah, I heard about him. Oh, he died. Oh, man, that's crazy. And it just kind of was like, whoa. But it didn't really have that like grip I feel like that I think the film can communicate and show the power of the loss much greater than a headline could and that was just the impetus for me to make this was like I knew that would always have value and I guess going back to what I said earlier that was like this the North Star that was like if nothing at all or if somebody steals my story or buy it or like somebody makes the exact same film and it's bought by Netflix, will I still be happy with what I've done? And it was always, yeah, I'm still very happy with this and the way I've taken it. And I can only do what I can do, you know, and uh, I think it rewarded me in some way. I, I think I learned something from it. No, definitely. And I just think that that's such an important perspective for people creating anything really that, okay, if somebody else does this, am I still going to feel good about myself? And I think you did right by the caretakers. I think that their story was told and told well, and that's such a great part of the story. And one of my favorite parts of the screening was seeing JoJo get the standing ovation that he deserves. JoJo, along with James, are going to join David and Andrew at a couple of the screenings, so I'll make sure to mark those down below. So you can see Kafaro at the Newport Beach Film Festival. That's going to be Sunday, April 28th, and Tuesday, April 30th. And then Northwest Fest in Canada on May 4th. Then Docklands here in the Bay Area. It's going to be on May 3rd and May 5th and then 
<laughs> and then Benjamin Wall's gallery throughout May in South Carolina, North Carolina, and more places. And then the Seattle International Film Festival, which takes place in May. Of course, all of those screenings are going to be in the description down below, as long as the website. Check out kafarothefilm.com and the Instagram kafarothefilm. Anything else you want to tell the people, David? I guess when it comes to documentaries, though, or any filmmaker considering making a story that I would say really evaluate, personally evaluate what it means to you and also what you're willing to sacrifice and how far, because you can really go down, a, I don't want to say a black hole, but you know, you can almost find yourself two, three years into a story and be like, is this how I want to tell it? Or am I doing this right? I think there's a self-awareness to documentary filmmaking that you know, you have to be realistic with yourself sometimes and ask others their thoughts or put together rough cuts early and, and see what people's feedback is. Because for the longest time, people validated this film as like, oh, that would be such a great short. It'd be like, oh, man, wow. Like, I could see that being an amazing short on like Opdocs or like New York Times Opdocs or like you should pitch that to like great big story on CNN or whatever. And I was like, really? You know, like, okay, all right. Well, I guess how could all these years or at the time, maybe two, three years of telling a story be bottled into a short? If it could and be the most compelling way to tell it, then by all means, I'll do it. But I had a chance at making a feature that I cared about and I felt like deserved a long form. But I will say, be realistic with yourself and don't make a feature just to make it 60 minutes or to make it 80 minutes or to make it 120 minutes, you know, like don't do it just to make it say, yeah, I'm a feature documentary filmmaker or I made a feature. Like to me, that does not matter at all, especially in this day and age. I, I really think that content can take shapes in different ways and be most powerful in different mediums. I think there could be probably a great podcast that was probably made around the same time about Sudan and using the Swahili voices that could be translated. Um, and I just think there's many mediums in which to tell stories. And to any filmmaker making a documentary, it's, it's really don't be married to the feature form. Just be married to the best way to tell the story. And it's does not have anything to do with total runtime. I can guarantee you that. But there is a self-awareness to it. I think that you have to kind of be ready to kind of question yourself and ask if you're doing it the right way and what is the right way. You know, you have to learn sometimes. You have to listen to people that maybe you don't completely believe in uh, their abilities, but they might have a really good outside perspective. And sometimes it takes a lot of growth, I think, for you to kind of become comfortable with your story and have that self-awareness of when to kind of call it what it is. That's, that would kind of be my only, I guess, advice to other filmmakers in the documentary space. Man, you're so nonchalant, but you just gave us so much wisdom. Like, I know personally I'm going to have to run this back and anybody else who has to run this back and listen to it again and take notes. Goodness gracious. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. I'm glad that you had me on the show. This was really cool. No problem. And as always, thank you so much for checking out this episode. If you enjoyed it, make sure to hit that follow or subscribe button on whatever you're listening on and come out to Doclands this weekend. I want to see you. Kafaro, along with two other documentaries that have been featured on DocuPod are going to be playing at Doclands, Moonlight Sonata, Deafness in Three Movements, and Madame Mars, Women and the Quest for Worlds Beyond. If you missed those episodes, those are going to be down in the show description as well.
well and then reach out to me let me know what your favorite part of this episode was or just say hi i'm on twitter at special says and on instagram it's at special says as well